everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And Andrea, I'm just going to take this moment. I, This is over. What? This is... No. I'm, we're just getting started. No. You, I'm... Uh, us. You're done? Us. Oh, oh. Us. Oh, we're done. We're done. Oh, yeah, we had a good run. Did we? <laughs> I'm going to take the listeners uh-huh. and let them smear their faces with jam. Okay. And, um, yeah, yeah, there's someone else. I, I don't know what to tell oh, you. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I, like, is there someone else or am I projecting that? Like, Or is it me and myself and my bodily fluids that have created something? It's it's all a mystery to me. Or is it me. the nature of society that brings us together and drives us apart for many reasons? Or is it high theater? I, I Maybe. I, I'm open to all of these interpretations because holy fuck, what a film. Yeah, today we are talking about Andrzej Zulawski's 1981 film, Possession. This is a film we have been asked about, when are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? So many times over the eight years of doing this podcast, um, and we've always kind of been like, Oh, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, we'll get to it. And and now we're here. I hadn't seen it for years. I knew that it was kind of, you know, important. It was one of those films that was very divisive within the horror community, very open to interpretation, very strange, very singular. And I think that's why we never got to it was I was like, I don't know what this film is about. So we never really lumped it in with pairings the way we do. Yeah. And, and it's a bit of an intimidating film. No kidding. <laughs> you know, there, there's a lot to it. And um, we should say this was actually a Dean tier pick. So for all the people who've been asking about this film over the years, it came down to uh, one of our patrons, Andrew, uh, who bought the Dean tier where Thank you you, Andrew. Pick what film we do for an episode. And Andrew very kindly, as we mentioned last episode, passed it on to our friends at the Evolution of Horror podcast. Thank you, Evolution of Horror. And they said, Possession? Do you guys want to do that? And uh, we kind of went, okay, let's do it. Let's have at her. And um, we're here. And we're doing it. I'm happy to cross this off my bucket list, mm-hmm. so to speak. For years and years, I was kind of curious about it. Uh, I have a vision of a poster art that's kind of a Medusa head. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, things are going to get gendery and weird. And holy shit, did they? Can't say I super enjoyed the film, but as per the Faculty of Horror's history, uh, I'm coming away from studying it with something of an appreciation. <laughs> and I only really became aware of possession because of Kayla Janice's book, House of Psychotic Women. Mm-hmm. Um, that book uh, kind of came out in the early like 2010s, yep. uh, right when I was really getting into the horror community. So I picked it up and uh, read it, and it's a, such an interesting book. It's, you know, I think a really important text to um, horror journalism and horror theory. It's so singular and interesting. And I remember watching Possession kind of based on uh, Kayla's writing within mm-hmm. the book. So this would have been in kind of my early mid-20s. And I 
watched it, and in my memory, I'm now questioning if I watched the whole thing. Fair. I think I might have turned it off, or you repressed some of、uh, it. <laughs> I, it just didn't grab me. Yeah.、Um, and I think especially when you read someone like、uh, Kayla's writing, and she's so passionate, and this film feels so alive when she writes about、mm-hmm. it. And I didn't get that same kind of connection to it, so I think I felt a bit <laughs> alienated from it.、Um, and I have to say, when I came back to watch it in full, obviously for this episode, I. Still felt very distanced from it,、mm-hmm. um, and for me, I think that's actually a really important part of this film. I think it's intentionally trying to be really combative、mm-hmm. with its audience.、Um, but yeah, it's not my favorite film.、Mm-hmm. I do have a lot to say about this film.、Um, you know, I think we both will discuss maybe some of the things we had issues with, but I, I don't know if I came away with an appreciation of it.、Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I have more of an appreciation for where it is within like film history. Totally. Yeah, it's an interesting film. It's absolutely part of like the horror canon. Yes. So it's something we should absolutely be talking about、uh, in the faculty of horror. I agree. And with that said, shall we get possessed? <laughs> Because you say I for me. Love opens to absolutely unknown horizons. Isabella Johnny, the internationally acclaimed actress, in her most explosive, controversial role. Two men and a woman no man could ever possess. Special visual effects by Academy Award winner Carlo Rambaldi. Mortal terror. Occupied Germany, Mark returns home to West Berlin from a mysterious business trip. He is reunited with his young son Bob and his wife Anna. Anna tells him she wants a divorce, which sends Mark into a destructive bender. Mark learns that Anna has another lover, Heinrich, and that Anna is disappearing for stretches of time, leaving Bob uncared for. Mark meets Helen, Bob's teacher, who looks exactly like Anna except for her vibrant green eyes. As the film progresses, both Mark and Anna exhibit increasingly erratic and disturbing behavior. Mark hires a private investigator who discovers that Anna is shacking up with a terrifying otherworldly creature. Shacking up. <laughs> I didn't. What else <laughs> I didn't is it? Rock and roll. 
Anna tells Mark about a violent miscarriage that she suffered in the subway. Heinrich also becomes increasingly erratic, and he discovers the creature and the bodies of the private investigators that Anna has murdered. Mark kills Heinrich and makes a plan with Anna to help her escape. Mark leaves Bob with Helen and discovers Anna having sex with the creature. Mark creates a distraction, allowing Anna to escape from the police and his other business associates who are starting to follow them all now. Anna and Mark meet as the police descend on them. The creature is now a fully formed doppelganger of Mark. Mark and Anna are killed in a shootout, and the doppelganger flees and goes to Helen's apartment, where Bob is clearly terrified of what's at the door. The film ends with the sound of sirens and bombs falling. Okay. I was so excited to hear your synopsis because I had just finished watching it for the first time and I was digesting, I was digesting. And that's putting it kindly. To be honest, this film ruined my weekend and I was grappling with that. And I was chatting with a regular longtime listener who talks to me on Facebook and she mentioned the miscarriage scene and I was like, is that what that was? It made me question whether my interpretation of the sequence of events could be trusted because it was so bizarre and I was like, Alex might have watched a completely different Mm -hmm. thing. However, I think my assessment of what was happening in the film is largely aligned with yours, except for the idea that the creature became Mark's doppelganger. I thought it was just kind of another clone the way Anna's was. Oh, no, I, uh, oh, no. Okay. (laughs) No, and I I think this is very much a film that is um, intentionally vague. Mm -hmm. It is intentionally kind of obtuse. Um, And it's not going to spell everything out for you. As you see the kind of creature, and again, that lighting is real dark, (laughs) um, it seems to take on a more human form each time you see it. Right. Like, I think one of the last times you see it where it's kind of lying on the bed before Mark sees them having sex, you kind of see a chest yeah. And it starts to look very masculine. And so that was always my interpretation that the creature became a doppelganger of Mark. Um, and trust me, I did have to qualify that with several synopses. Um, but also to your point, I wouldn't have necessarily picked up on the whole miscarriage thing. Right. Until, like, I read about it. And, you know, I think this is kind of a cult film. And for the people who write about it and love it, and there's a lot of people out there who, you know, really respond to this film. Mm -hmm. It is this notorious scene of acting and trauma and violence and all kinds of stuff. Uh Well, that does kind of complicate my overall reading that we're going to get to later. But uh, I'm cool with that. Yeah, and I mean, there's so much within this film that just kind of, like, whispers of theme and Mm -hmm. ideas, Mm -hmm. like the kind of constant notion of God. Who is God? I have God within me. I've seen the face of God. You're the other half. Like, all of this stuff that seems to be residing within a kind of popular religion, because, you know, when Anna has her miscarriage, or, you know, let's just say that's that. Let's call it that. Let's call it that. Um, Right before that, she is in a church looking up at a statue of Jesus and whimpering. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense of, like, old God new God, but I'm getting that from what I've read about the film, 
that's not necessarily if I was just sitting there in 1981 watching this film, what I would have pulled out of it. Right. And that was that was my big concern going into this episode was I know there are so many analyses out there that are so varied and deeply personal. And there's Kayla's stuff and like tons and tons of think pieces. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that to color my analysis, you know, insofar as I went into this film blind, I also kind of wanted to come into this episode with with my own ideas. But um, I'm really interested to see what you guys all thought, what you think of what we're taking away from it. I think this is going to be one of those episodes that becomes a great big old conversation. Yeah, because I think this film is going to mean something different for each and every person. Mm -hmm. And similar to Andrea, when I rewatched it for this episode, I was really cognizant to stay away from like think pieces about mm-hmm. it. Um, I did reread um, the portion of House of Psychotic Women where Kayla talks about the film. Mm-hmm. And then I came across another article, uh, which I kind of stumbled upon, which I'll get into a bit later in the episode because I was looking for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually really liked the reading of it. But well, in large part, I've stayed away from those like possession is about X, Y, and Z. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, they're they're out there, so absolutely go seek them out. But uh, these these are going to be our our takes. Yeah, you wanted to know what we had to say, so here it is. But let's start as we do with kind of the immediate history of possession. So Andre Zulowski, he divorced an actress by the name of Malgorazza Brownek. And they uh, had a son together, Xavier, who is now a director in his own right. And Zulowski came upon their son, Xavier, being left alone in an apartment smeared with jam. Um, Those are the inciting moments for this film. Um, It's very much kind of a personal film for Zulowski. He's a Polish director, and he does have notoriety, but he's never kind of been celebrated among a lot of the great European auteurs. Um, And so he's always existed in this kind of cult area. And... Possession is very much a film about divorce uh, and separation and not just between a man and a woman, but between a lot of different things that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And really, from the release of this film in 1981, it, it almost immediately had this cult status. And that is because it premiered at Cannes. Uh, the film festival, where it was nominated for a Palme d'Or. It didn't win, but Isabel Anjani, who was the uh, lead actress who plays Anna, she won for Best Actress. It was also briefly released in the UK, but then it was labeled as one of the video nasties. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very hard to get hold of, if not completely impossible. It was released in North America, but with a heavily edited version. So the kind of true version or what you'd call the director's cut is just over two hours. The version released in North America is 81 minutes. Right. It must be an entirely different film that really took out a lot of the um, existential stuff and just kind of dealt with like plot and monster. Right. It's not the one that you saw, right? We watched the full length. No, I don't even think I could find the 81 minute version. Interesting. Um, I'm sure maybe someone has it out there, but I could not find it. Um, It kind of re-rose to prominence 
in the early 2000s when Anchor Bay released the director's cut in 2000, uh, and that was followed by a Mondo Vision Blu-ray in 2014. Mm. And I do really think House of Psychotic Women really helped propel this film to a new generation because, you know, I think that book and Kayla herself, who's, you know, still doing so much fantastic work out in the community, has always been a champion of this film and the kind of response to this film. So I think that kind of helped reignite that appetite for this film. Cool. So something I kind of want to get out of the way off the bat is like I'm watching this film and I'm like, okay, the Berlin Wall. (laughs) The Berlin Wall is right there and there's no way we can talk about this film without talking about Berlin, without talking about what the wall represents, what was happening in the place at the time and this was where I became concerned that this episode was going to be a really dry history lesson. (laughs) But the more I dug up and the more I understood, the more I realized I don't think it's a dry history lesson. I do think that it informs a lot of what this film is about, to my reading anyway. So I'll try to make it as interesting as possible. But basically, both the apartments in this film are located right next to the wall, which was still intact at the time. It's a city divided, a marriage divided, and this division is ideological, but also economic and having to do with power, and it has a lot to do with Mark and Anna as well. Uh, I actually went to Berlin in Mm -hmm. 2020, before COVID. A lot of people are talking about 2020 is like the year that we lost. Nobody traveled. Nobody did anything fun. I was there. I was at the site of the wall. It was your first European trip. It was my first trip over the pond, and I was right the fuck there. And so, you know, I read all the plaques and stuff, but I did more research for this episode. So, basically... After World War II, the U.S. was at that Cold War with the Soviet Union and wanted to make sure that communism didn't spread through to Western Europe. And so to do so, they sent military support to Turkey and Greece, and they also made efforts to improve the European economy so that the idea of communism lost its appeal. And Germany was caught right in the middle of that tension, specifically its capital city of Berlin, which became symbolic of that conflict. The west side of Germany was fortified independently by the US and it called itself the Federal Republic of Germany, while the east side, assisted by the Soviet Union, was called the German Democratic Republic. And when things got bad in East Germany, people were fleeing to the west side and the East Germans wanted to close that border, first with a guarded barbed wire fence and eventually with this super long concrete wall. The wall was hugely disruptive to German life. Not only was it kind of fucking scary in that you had armed guards permitted to shoot people trying to get through illegally, but people couldn't visit family on the other side. They couldn't commute to work, etc. And the wall stood for 26 years until the late 80s when Germans started to oppose it. And then in 1989, East Berliners began to dismantle the wall by hand with picks and hammers and stuff. And there's really dramatic footage of it. And as I mentioned, if you ever find yourself in Berlin, like the wall was so long that there are multiple historical sites, but it's really interesting. So in symbolic terms, this wall represents an impenetrable ideological barrier. It divides economies and infrastructures that aren't compatible with one another, namely communism and capitalism. So (laughs) to go a little deeper on communism, I want to talk a bit about the Communist Manifesto. 
And the Communist Manifesto is one of the founding texts of Marxism by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. And it was a pamphlet that was published and distributed in London just as the 1848 revolutions were heating up. It was a time of radical political change in Europe, post-war. We don't want this shit to happen again, so how can we reform our countries and our policies and our politics such that this won't happen again. And the pamphlet explains how the working class, the proletariat, have historically been exploited by a class struggle with those who own the means of production, the bourgeoisie. And this manifesto culminates with a list of short-term goals to move to a classless society, communism. And those goals included progressive income tax, free public education, abolition of child labor, and perhaps the most the most scandalous and unthinkable of them all, abolition of inheritance and private property. And this is where it started to apply to possession for me, because within this communist revolution that Marx and Engels were calling for, and they weren't just saying that this should happen. They were saying that this will happen eventually. Why not now? They were pretty certain it would happen. They argued that class inequality could only go so far before the working class revolted. So God bless their naive optimism, I guess. But they also discussed the labor that went on outside of the factories, the labor that was being devalued and dismissed under capitalism because it was unpaid. And I know I've talked on this podcast before about Marxist feminism. It's really talking about the unpaid and undervalued work that happens in the home. Engels argued that the nuclear family unit became the norm with the emergence of capitalism in the 18th century. And the nuclear family is, of course, mom, dad, 2.5 kids. And he argued that not only did they give all the power to the patriarchy, but they centralized his wealth such that the bourgeoisie could make sure their lineage stayed on top. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about inheritance. The idea that this was my family, they have my name. If anything happens to me, it goes to them. And so it keeps all the wealth within that lineage. And so Part of what Marx and Engels were fighting for is the abolition of this family unit because it centralizes wealth in these powerful affluent families. Are you still with me? Yes. All right. So to come back to possession, here they are situated right on this fucking fault line between Western capitalism and free market and laissez-faire and all that bullshit propaganda that they use to convince us blue-collar assholes that this is as good as it gets. And then on the other side, there are these Eastern efforts at trying something else and trying something new. And those efforts threatened the breakdown of the nuclear family unit. And the nuclear family unit is something that all of us in the West take for granted as the natural order of things. You know, to this day, I don't think that most people associate the breakdown of the nuclear family with the fact that parenting with both adult members of the family required to earn income is untenable. Mm -hmm. It's completely untenable. It doesn't work. And instead of addressing the problem of the family unit where queer people and women are historically not safe, where patriarchy and capitalism are reified and reproduced, we act like these people are the problem because they're not fitting the script. But the script is the problem. Anyway, if anyone is interested in further reading about emancipatory Marxist feminism, there's really interesting work being done. And it's quite radical. I I could add a link to the Communist Manifesto if you want to, like, go there and go hard. But I think there's really interesting conversations happening about how the lockdowns due to COVID-19 
have reignited these conversations to tell someone to stay home when that doesn't necessarily mean safety for everyone. That really needs to be addressed. So that's a link that I'm going to add. But I feel like that really sets the stage that the breakdown of this family and the anxieties and the restlessness, there's so much restlessness mm. in this film. It's because it's a time of tension and these guys are right on the precipice of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in rewatching the film or fully watching it for the first time, what I took away is, is I kind of expected when I was watching it to have more of a sense of like a kind of traditional quote-unquote horror possession like the exorcist like something like that totally whereas what i came away with is that possession as the title is meaning like a thing a thing that i own and i felt like mark and his whole thing about anna was this obsession with her this obsession with wanting to know her with wanting to know what she was doing with constantly defining what she was doing because what I saw in the film was she would have these kind of reactions and breakdowns and he would contextualize them Mm. he would say you're like this you look like that you are this that and that and it would you know kind of frame her within a really specific viewpoint yes um and to me that just spoke so much to mark being that kind of zulowski-esque figure within the film knowing that he was you know going through a divorce and this film was his kind of reaction to it and it it led me to think about a couple other white straight male directors who Mm. have made divorce films in a kind of horror genre setting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think most notably you have David Cronenberg with The Brood. Mm -hmm. And then this one is a bit of an outlier, um, and he hasn't actually been divorced from what I researched today on Wikipedia, but Denis Villeneuve's Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal. I love that movie. Do you? I I don't. I don't. It's like women are spiders. I fucking get it. I think I just love Jake. And I love spiders. Well, that's a whole fucking other episode, and just let's put a pin in that. Um, But a lot of this film felt so much to me about a kind of male experience, a male director experience of watching a woman leave them and wanting to kind of put all these things on her. And I think, Andrea, to your point, when you have this full total breakdown of, you know, this thing that we've all kind of bought into or told to buy into, and it doesn't work, it doesn't make us happy, it doesn't fulfill us, and we go, holy shit, no, this needs to end, and you act maybe to some people, quote-unquote, irrationally. You are this and that and the other, and it was always this kind of, felt like it was this lens of these directors going, look at this crazy woman and what I had to put up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't respond well to these films. And I think a lot of you out there know, like, my love for Cronenberg. And, you know, to me, The Brood just doesn't resonate well with me. It's one of those films that just I don't like very much. I like a lot of his other films. The Brood is a bit like, uh, enemy I have real problems with. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a messy, messy little subgenre of horror that is uncomfortable for me to sit in because it feels so heavily male Mm -hmm. and a particular white straight male gaze that is uncompromising. It is not generous into a woman leaving them. No. 
So I feel like we arrived in a really similar place. And I I shouldn't be surprised because we're so close and we've been doing this podcast for so long. But I also felt like my take on this film, my overall take, which is that this is entirely Mark's POV, his entire journey to coming to grips with this breakup. I don't know why I, I didn't think it would hit you the same way it hit me, but I think that's entirely the case. I wasn't at all surprised to read that the film was somewhat autobiographical for him also dealing with a failed marriage because it is entirely Mark's perspective and projections on the situation that he needs something more complex and fantastical to blame for his divorce. And so he projects up all these bizarre details and increasingly elaborate and hideous fantasy that culminates in Anna's total degradation Mm -hmm. and the arrival of her doppelganger in a perfect loving, subservient mother figure. Let me tell you, teachers do not get paid enough. (laughs) I feel like Anna's independence looks like hysteria or madness, but only through Mark's eyes. Whereas Mark, initially he regresses to an infant, barely able to speak. Mama, the fuck was that? But I know what the fuck that is. And that is a heteronormative man without his wife needing his mother. And that is entirely how I read that. And I feel like it also explains why the first time he meets Heinrich, he's all handsome and erudite and worldly and all of Mark's jealous insecurities. But then later, his slick facade starts to crumble when Mark realizes he's not the rival he thought he was. No, of course, of course I wasn't cucked by this like fancy guy. There's something else that captivated his wife, something inhuman. And that keeps coming up again and again in the film. They keep talking about, oh, he takes your wife, he takes your wife. The possession mm-hmm. thing that you touched upon was very strong. And I feel like that was probably a very comforting thought, that his wife didn't leave him for being a shitty dad, an absent partner, but rather she was bewitched by this otherworldly thing. And as for the Mark doppelganger at the end, my best guess toward that was that perhaps at the end of the road, it finally occurred to Mark that he hadn't been the perfect husband in Anna's eyes. And so she also gets her weird-eyed clone. Yeah, I think there's like a few ways at that, but in large part, I agree with it. I think this whole kind of mystique around Mark, the character, um, like it's alluded to in multiple descriptions of the film that he is a spy mm-hmm. because he has like shady business dealings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Jesus, how many men out there do you know who have fantasies about being James Bond? Of course. Um, and it's all vague business nonsense that they talk about. Very important. Very secret. Very, very yeah, important. Pink socks. Pink socks. And then you see pink socks at the end and you're like, okay. All right. Sure. <laughs> um, I would love, if we could, for a little bit, can we talk about hysteria? Please. So I would love to begin this section with a quote from House of Psychotic Women, uh, not from Kayla, but she kicks off her chapter that includes possession with this quote from Zulowski. Hysteria. I love this word. I know it by heart now, absolutely. Fuck you, Andre. And <laughs> Can I just say that? Yeah, totally. Um, so one of the things I wrote down in my initial watch was like, let's talk about hysteria. 
and then I saw it in Kayla's chapter, uh-huh. and so I was like, okay, this is all now making some sense. Let's talk more about hysteria. For our avid listeners of this podcast, or regular listeners, you may remember me mentioning in our last episode about Twilight, about my teacher, Miss Snyder. She was, you know, truly one of the best teachers I've ever had. I remember, I don't know what context or what it was, but I truly remember it was her. She talked about the word hysteria or hysteric. Mm-hmm. And how that's actually really problematic when you talk about women and hysteria because it's incredibly sexist and it's really demeaning Mm -hmm. and all of these things. And I don't think I quite glommed on to it at that time because my brain was still a little like teenage mush, but Uh it, it held back in there. And then I went to theater school and I don't know how much I've talked about this part of my life in the podcast before. So forgive me if I'm rehashing, but right out of high school, I got into this really uppity acting conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lasted about a year there. It was like a big deal to get in at my age and like blah, blah, blah. And they were going to like break me down and build me up and all this stuff that I now know is absolute fucking bullshit. And if anyone ever says that to you, I want you to turn around and walk the fuck away. However, I was 18. I didn't know a lot better. I was impressionable. And I said, okay. And I had this terrible acting teacher who's just so fucking mean. Like he actually hit me. He hit me. I then had to like submit things to the college later about this. He actually hit me in a class in front of people. The fuck? To quote unquote, make me scared. And so we would have to do all these emotional things in class, in, in this theater acting school. And Whenever one of myself or another woman would get up and, you know, try something and if it felt too out there, too emotional, he'd be like, oh, you're being hysterical. Mm -hmm. And there was part of me in the back of my mind that was going like, ding, 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 Miss Snyder, hysteria is misogyny and it's Mm -hmm. bad and Mm -hmm. and this is fucking wrong. And there was part of me that was so indoctrinated into this like acting aura that I was like, maybe I am hysterical. I don't know anymore. So long story short, I was completely disabused of my ideals of acting or wanting to be an actor. Thank God. Thank God. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't advise that experience on anyone, but it certainly got me to that place a lot quicker than a lot of other people I know. But this notion of hysteria and hysteric has really stuck with me on a personal level. And I'm sure you can comb through Faculty of Horror uh, episodes and hear me use the word hysteric or hysteria. It's so common mm-hmm. and it feels so descriptive of so many things, but I thought this was a really good film to actually talk about what does hysteria mean? Mm-hmm. And there's a really, really good book on this topic um, called Once Upon a Text, Hysteria from Hippocrates. And it's by a few different authors. And there is one chapter by uh, Helen King, and it's called Hysteria Beyond Freud. And this whole book really breaks down hysteria and what that means and the whole context of it. So Greeks believe that the uterus was the origin for all disease and caused unreliable behavior in women. The belief was that women with unfertilized eggs, those eggs became toxic within us and made us behave crazy and made us sick. Um, This was used throughout the medieval era to keep women pregnant and tending to children. As medicine advanced, the medical institutions still remained untrustworthy of women and even believing us. They often thought women were kind of inherently 
unwell. Mm. And for some of the medieval origins of hysteria actually informed the witch trials. So two of the main indicators of quote-unquote hysteria were sexual thirst and disinterest in marriage. Not at all related. Not at all related. (laughs) Definitely unrelated to this film. Um, But these two things were punishable by death. You could be accused of being a witch and you would be burned at the stake. And even into the 19th century, hysteria was still seen as a mental illness. As women lobbied for autonomy through the 19th century, they were labeled as hysterical and therefore mentally ill, which is in itself a whole fucking mess of ableist nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, And the language of that became so entrenched in anti-suffragette and anti-feminist movements that it became an easy shorthand to dismiss women and what they wanted. God, the the political cartoons, the (sighs) anti-suffragette sexist political cartoons are devastating, like overt misogyny masterclass. Exactly. And I I think possession kind of sees like a realization of dark hysteria. This film is terrified of Anna as a woman keeping secrets, Mm -hmm. disappearing, being unchecked, and just existing outside of a male gaze. And look what happens. She fucks a monster. Yeah. And there is so much fear and anxiety around mm-hmm. it that this film cannot handle itself. I mean, Anna, like we can talk, uh, you know, about, you know, Marxism and, and the Berlin Wall and all of that stuff and all feeds into it. But the control and surveillance of Anna, like to me, this movie, Possession, is ultimately, I read it as a woman just wanting to be alone. Mm-hmm. She wants to go fuck this fucking monster. Like, leave her be. Stop chasing her. Well, she doesn't want to fuck Mark. No. And fundamentally, that's what we can't bear in this film. That's what the viewer is trying to grapple with, is Mark is such a prize, right? Yeah. So, Andrea, in that first kind of opening scene in Possession, where Mark gets out of the cab and is greeted by Anna, and they have this really awkward exchange, Mm -hmm. did you have any response to that? It felt like a familiar scene where he knew what was up and it was already very much over in her mind. And rather than accepting it, he was just kind of like, "Okay, what do I have to do next? And on to the next. So for me, this informed so much of what I took out of this film, which is that opening scene where Mark and Anna are kind of outside their apartment building and they're, quote unquote, talking can't just say you don't know. That's what you said on the phone. When will you know? I don't know. Do you want me to spend the night somewhere else? In a hotel or something? Do you want us to meet later on? We can talk more calmly. Do you... Do you need more time? What... What do you need? What has happened? So the only thing I could think was, this is weird. This is awkward. People don't talk like this. Holy shit, it's Pinterest. He's the birthday party. Yeah, exactly. That's my only entry point to Pinter. So Pinter wrote a ton of plays. He wrote some movies. He was incredibly influential in the 20th century, particularly within kind of, you know, Western theater circles, to the point where he had this term created, Pinteresque. And 
to me, that always meant stilted dialogue, mm -hmm. a portrayal of artifice, um, the fact that all the dialogue was so overt and so awkward mm -hmm. to a certain point that it just portrayed how fake all of our regular interactions are. Okay. It's Again, it's that kind of confrontational aspect to this film. Now, Pinter... His plays are mysteries, they're deceptions, and what is being presented to you, it's not real. There's always the underlying stuff of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So what is being said to you, what is being said by the characters, usually isn't that real. There's usually other stuff that you are, as an audience member, kind of taking apart from the dialogue. And that's what this film so reminded me of. There's an often used term for his work. His plays and, and his uh, films are often called comedies of menace. Okay. Which I actually really like, but I thought there was a really great definition of Pinteresque from the Swedish Academy. Pinter restored theater to its basic elements, an enclosed space, an unpredictable dialogue where people are at the mercy of each other and pretenses crumble. Okay. The more the characters talk in possession, the more we realize their words are false or meaningless mm -hmm. or didactic or strange or nonsensical. You know, there is just this text that seems to just always be unrolling towards us. And again, it's that notion of artifice that I thought was so predominant within this film yeah. because there are things happening within this film. Like we've talked about the Cold War, the Berlin Wall, the male-female nuclear family tension, and yet they're always talking to each other. And all of this talk is kind of meaningless because when Mark is asking Anna, are you okay? Are you happy? And she's kind of like nodding and then shaking her head. And it's all very odd. Yeah, it's oblique. They're not addressing the elephant in the room. Exactly. And I think Pinter, he has himself refused a lot of definitions. And fair enough, I get it. You're a fucking artist. <laughs> um, but it also kind of led me to think about theater of the absurd. And again, if you're a newer listener and you're wondering why I'm talking about all this theater stuff, it's because I have my MA in theater. This is what I got, friends. It's <laughs> uh, finally putting that degree to use. So there was a critic... Martin Eslin, and he coined the term theater of the absurd. And generally, this speaks to a kind of post-World War II boom of theater. And it was a focus on ideas of existentialism. What happens when existence lacks meaning? Usually the structure of the narrative is circular with the end of the piece mirroring the beginning. So that to me was so reminiscent of Possession where you have at the beginning of the film, Mark returning home to Anna. And then at the end of the film, you have this doppelganger returning to the home of Helen. Mm. And it's very odd. And in kind of the theater of the absurd, yes, it mirrors each other, but there is always a sense that something is wrong, mm -hmm. that something is out of place, and that, yes, you've just returned to the same place you were, but what does that mean? And usually these plays would not provide any kind of resolution or meaning, and they were all so oblique that you just kind of had to pull out of it what you could. Other writers uh, besides Pinter, who were you know generally considered to be part of Theatre of the Absurd, were Samuel Beckett, Edward Albee, Eugene Onesco, and there is this 
kind of pull towards talking about the atrocities of what was happening within the world and the confusion and the chaos and all of this uncertainty that we were being presented with as you know humanity mm-hmm. and trying to grapple with it through these really mundane circumstances that were just too tricky to articulate. Okay. So through inarticulation, yeah. they tended to reveal more about the world than they could throughout exactly stating it right. because that's too complicated. Uh-huh. It's too it's too dense, it's too weird even when we talk about marxism when we talk about nuclear families it's too hard because we're in it. Right. We're, we're living it. Yeah. So through the absurd and through the artifice, the goal was to kind of break down those barriers. Okay. And for me, I think Possession is a film that really wants you to know it's a film. From the really stilted dialogue to the music to the framing, I'm thinking particularly about the camera movement in one of those early scenes with Mark when he's reporting to the business associates he's working for and the camera's just circling in that room. Big empty room. And it's just, it's this kind of wily movement that's dancing around the room and you're like, whoa, okay. And it can move that way because the dialogue is so meaningless. Mm -hmm. If the dialogue was really important, you would have to really train on the characters and understand what they were saying. Whereas it's all kind of meaningless so the camera can kind of dance around. And another scene that really struck me, which is... It's such a weird scene, and I don't know where to place it kind of because it comes in the last half of the film. But when, as far as I can discern, it's Anna, and she is teaching ballet. Mm. And she is forcing that one girl's leg harder and harder. And this young girl is clearly in pain. She's crying out, but she's trying to do it. And Anna... Or Isabel and Johnny, the actress, is looking directly down the camera. Yeah. And she's staring you down. Yeah, she's yeah. pulling this girl's leg. And it's like, what? This isn't about ballet. This no. isn't about this girl. This isn't even about this movie. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, a mention that Anna left her job like about a year ago, but it doesn't go much deeper into that. So it's again, it's a question of where is that scene placed in the timeline of it. But it's all very, to me in my reading, intentionally confusing Mm -hmm. about this film. Mm -hmm. There is no purpose other than to confuse and disarm us Mm -hmm. and to kind of say, all of this shit that we're showing you is kind of fake because our lives are kind of fake. Mm -hmm. Like when you ask someone, how are you doing? You go, I'm fine. Fine, thanks. Fun, and you can be crumbling on the inside. You like no one knows what you're actually going through, except for probably a few close people to you. And that's really, I think, what a lot of these plays, and then I think Possession really gets at, and that's what it reminded me so much of when I was watching it. And really, I think Possession is constantly about breaking that fourth wall. The fourth wall is disturbed. It is challenged, and you kind of have to lose yourself in it because. It is strangely compelling. It is mysterious. It's visceral. It's upsetting. It's gruesome. And it's all extrapolated from a dissolution of a marriage and the secrets that are revealed within it. Because I think, you know, certainly for me when I was growing up, like the dissolution of a marriage is the dissolution of a home. Mm -hmm. It's the breaking apart of that. And, you know, you see people sticking together for the kids, but at what cost? And all of this stuff, all of this tension that's happening there. And I think this film ultimately serves to show the artifice of those needs and Mm -hmm. of those wants. There is another theater practitioner who I think we should 
probably talk about a little bit in this episode, and that is Jerry Grotowski. So I studied Grotowski a little bit um, in my undergrad, and he is a Polish theater director and theorist. And I have to say his work didn't really resonate with me. And that's because he saw theater as ritual. He was really into Jungian psychology and this kind of release of the collective unconscious through really visceral theater. And that's really what I saw when I was watching Possession. And to me, so much of Possession felt like I was watching scene studies in theater school. Okay. Like Sam Neill and Isabella and Johnny just like frankly hamming it up. Yeah. And just fucking going for it. And I felt actually so disassociated from it that it kind of rendered it meaningless for me. And that's where I think I have a bit of a problem with the film is it just through all this emotion, all this emotion that was being exacted on film, I was like, I should feel something, but I don't. And that's the danger with a kind of Grotowski-esque theater mm. is that if it doesn't resonate for you, it's actually just alienating and you kind of check out. Yeah. Um, but if it does resonate for you, and I think it does for a lot of people, then it's hugely important and influential and interesting and important. Um, this just didn't. And, and you know, to be really candid with all of you, I'm myself. I'm going through a separation right now. And I was like, oh, maybe possession will hit me really, really hard this time. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. It still didn't. I was like, I feel like none of this. Yeah. But that's cool, you guys. I just felt like I was watching people go through therapy yeah. on stage. Uh-huh. And I was a bit like... I I pay my own therapist for this, guys. (laughs) But this is a bit of a tangent, but I did want to mention this. So when I talk about Pinter and I talk about Theater of the Absurd and I talk about Grotowski, and these are all theater people and things and theories that are really, really important and um, they should absolutely be considered and evaluated, um, I did want to bring in another playwright. So there is a British playwright by the name of Sarah Kane, and that's Kane with a K. I'll link some information about her in the show notes. But she was predominantly active in the 90s. She unfortunately had a very short life. She had a lot of issues that she was dealing with, but she wrote five plays and one short film in her lifetime. And I was really introduced to her through a professor when I was doing my undergrad at Concordia who was British and she'd actually worked with Sarah Kane. And so she wrote to me what I feel like I should be getting from possession. Okay. So when I watched Possession, I was like, shit, this really reminds me of Sarah Kane's Blasted or Sarah Kane's Crave or Sarah Kane's 448 Psychosis. Her plays are called Extreme. Okay. They're violent in the way you would think of New French Extremity. And to me, really, Blasted is probably my favorite of hers. I got to see it, oh God, over probably 10 years ago now at the theater in Toronto, Buddies in Bad Times. And um, the only way I can describe it is that I was watching something dangerous. Oh, damn. And it was incredible. And so if you are kind of like me and you're like, I watch Possession and I get it, but I want something a bit different. Mm-hmm. Or I want something else that kind of tackles this in maybe a different way. I would just recommend checking out Sarah Kane's work. It certainly made an impact on me. It's a more female perspective on these same... Yeah, in some ways. And it just feels so subversive and so visceral. 
and truly, I think if possession resonates for you, it doesn't resonate for you, and you want to try to see a little bit more of maybe this kind of world, I would highly recommend her work, and we will link some information about her in the show notes. Andrea, do you feel like seeing more theater now, if we could? Uh... You know, in the grand pantheon of things I'm eager to do post-lockdown, theater is not top three, but it's maybe top ten. Bless you. <laughs> the theater community greatly appreciates your support. <laughs> um, seriously, that's, that's probably the highest praise they've gotten in a while. <laughs> I say this as a lapsed theater practitioner, my friends. Um, also, here's where I started to lose my mind a bit when I was watching the movie. It got a bit hysterical. I got a little hysterical, and then a man corrected me. What did you make of Anna's kind of sister's faith and chance monologue? Uh, nothing. Right. Because I think at that point in the film, for me, I was a bit like, okay, film, you're, you're jumping off a ledge. I don't know if I can follow you. Well, it's like you said, you start to mistrust the dialogue and you start to be like what are they really talking about and that is a story that's told by the camera and the pov and not the script yeah so i wrote down in my initial watch of the film faith and chance monologue and (laughs) question mark and then the next day or so when i was going to you know kind of formulate my thoughts on this film i went and i like googled possession 1981 faith and chance kind of hoping to find the dialogue so i could unpack it a little bit more for myself in so doing i found an article that i'm actually going to reference so this is one of those like oh possession is about blah 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 that had the quote in it that i needed and then i wound up reading it and i actually thought it was really interesting and wound up agreeing with it a lot hmm. so the article is called We'll, of course, link this. Possession, A Marriage of the Natural and the Supernatural by David West. I don't think I'm related to this David West. I have a cousin named David West, but um, he did not write this. Um, So, again, this is kind of towards, like, the latter half of the movie, and it's kind of intercut right before the kind of subway miscarriage scene, and, Mm -hmm. and she's talking about these sisters, Faith and Chance. Well, it's, it's like the two sisters of faith and chance. My faith can exclude chance, but my chance can, can, can explain faith. My faith didn't allow me to wait for chance, and chance didn't give me enough faith. I felt that when I watched this part, I actually felt kind of like shored up in my take on it because she says, and then I read that private life is a stage. I'm only playing many parts smaller than me. And I kind of, when I was able just to sit and read that, it was just that Anna was just being suffocated by expectations. And then she talks about these two sisters, Faith and Chance, which is, to me, an incredibly beautiful piece of writing. It's really, like, evocative. And in his piece, West writes, Anna separates the parts of herself that do bad things from the rest of herself using the notion of sisters. Chance allows her to act cruelly. Faith makes her feel guilty and repair the marriage. She says, my faith can't exclude chance, a sense that there is an inherent unfairness, an undesirableness in this setup. Parts of the self that are forever at odds with each other, a nature of the self versus a nurtured societal expectation. So the sense that I have is that faith is kind of that nurtured quality in all of us. We are supposed to be believing that this nuclear family is going to provide us with everything we need. Happiness, safety, good times. And then when you're in it and you go, oh shit, 
it doesn't, what do I do? And then do you take a chance and leave? Mm. And I think this kind of really strange monologue that Anna gives, it presents a third possibility that disrupts the reality of this film. And ultimately, and maybe unknowingly to these characters, this third possibility is the doppelgangers. And it kind of feeds into this notion of no gods or new gods. And, you know, where are these things coming from? Because yes, we are in Berlin. We are in all of these, you know, weird things happening, but we've got this strangeness to them. And I think, Andrea, as you pointed out, we've got these two kind of doppelgangers in Helen and then whatever this new Mark is called, who are better at being themselves than Mark or Anna is. Helen is a caretaker. She is a teacher. She shows up and she just takes care of Bob. Mm -hmm. No questions asked. It's fine. She'll wait with him after school. I used to teach preschool. And let me tell you, for every minute that a parent was late, we would charge a dollar. (laughs) One dollar. Yeah. And I was like, well, good thing Helen's an alien and doesn't need money or something. That's a bargain. Yeah. And I think there is something really interesting about Helen. And it stems from her kind of like offhand remark that is, I come from a place where evil seems easier to pinpoint because you can see it in the flesh. Mm. And when I was watching it, I hadn't clocked the whole doppelganger thing. I was like, oh, maybe it's just like she came from a mean town. But now, you know, in watching the whole film, it's like, oh, maybe it was this otherworldly place that she came from, like space or hell or something. (laughs) And that this kind of doppelganger of Mark also comes from there. And maybe Helen was the good one that got out. And the doppelganger of Mark is the evil one. And that's why Bob is so afraid at the end. Mm. And he's screaming at the end, like, don't let it in. Don't let it in. Very, like, Babadook-esque. Uh-huh. It just felt like, oh, there's this other world that is being visited upon this world. Uh-huh. So to kind of wrap up some of my thoughts about this, the ending where it's just, you know, the figure of the doppelganger of Mark at the door and Helen kind of being uncertain and Bob, you know, going face down into the bath. And the bombs are falling and sirens are happening. And and there was a lot of terrorism in Berlin and in Germany at that time. But it also, like, I was like, is this the alien invasion? Yeah. Is this how it starts? War of the Worlds. I mean, that's what I got. I like know? that you brought parenthood into the thing because I really got the sense from very early in that neither of them really wanted Bob. Neither of them really wanted to parent him, but they were both kind of maybe wrapped up in the roles and expectations of parents. And again, that's another possession, right? Mm. It's our child. And you're the mother. You're supposed to want this. Well, you're the father. We're supposed to want this. Neither of us want this. So what does that say about us? Well, and I think it goes into this other thing that I read through a few different summaries of this film, which is that when Anna goes through the miscarriage Mm-hmm. In the subway, what she miscarries actually becomes the otherworldly creature. Oh. And I don't know if I believe that, but also I don't disbelieve it. Yeah. And she talks about how she miscarried faith and was left with chance. Mm. And it's all of this kind of circular dialogue where I'm like, does this actually mean anything? But it also kind of leads me down a certain path. Yeah. Like to me, the difference between faith and chance is that faith has an intention. It has 
an expectation.、Mm-hmm. It, it has all of that shit. Whereas when we talk about chance, we're kind of throwing everything to the wind and where the chips fall as they might, right? I mean, chance is about a hope. It's、mm. about a possibility. I feel like that's faith. Well, and I think faith, and from my Google definition earlier today,、uh-huh. um, faith is a complete trust or confidence in something, whereas chance is a possibility of something happening. Interesting. You have to believe in faith. You have to be taught about faith. Is how I interpret this. You have to be taught that you know if you get married and you have a kid, it's gonna be great. You're gonna、right. be so happy. It's gonna be so great.、And、chance is the notion of like, what if I did something else? Chance is rolling the dice. Yeah, is not having an expectation or even really a predefined hope of the outcome. Yeah, and I think that's a very kind of feminist grappling with our nature versus nurture forever ongoing argument.、Mm. Um, you know, I, I'm going through a separation, and I've never had a strong inkling to have kids.、Mm. You know, and that's something I'm kind of like, okay, like. I was told it would always like happen, and you'll want kids, and you'll do this, and I'm like, I, I don't. Yeah,、so. really fine. Well, I'm going through menopause, and、yeah. it's、uh, chance. <laughs> you know, like the, these are the cards I've been dealt. The decision is made for me at this point. So, yeah, all that comes in. But it's all a very kind of strange thing, and I feel like this film. I mean, despite me not responding to it, it definitely like dragged up some things in me where I was like, okay, it's, this film is going to throw this at me. Yeah. How do I respond to it? And you know, will I watch this film again? I hope not. My only value of this film is that I got to discuss it with you, and now、oh. I feel like I'm done with it. You know what I mean? Like、oh. I wasn't able to meet the film on its level, but I'm always able to meet you on its level. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, despite you being a foot shorter. <laughs> me, it's you always rise to the occasion. Yeah, so I mean, this is a film that I feel like is so designed for this kind of discussion. Totally, that it almost kind of turns me off it a little bit. <laughs> Where I'm like, I, I fucking get it. You're smart, like Zelaski. You seem exhausting, but I think given the kind of conversation we have, the things we've pulled out of it, there's this kind of like aggressive blank space that it creates within you. Yeah, and you are as an audience member designed to fill it with something, and we did. And what you fill it with tells you a lot about you. That's right. So I got to use my theater degrees. Oh yeah, I got to talk about communism. My.、Uh... Forgot all about that utopian yeah. shit. Yeah, and I mean like the Soviets and communism—they were some messy bitches. You know, they were not the ideal.、No. So I don't know. Maybe East Berlin is a conversation for another time. It certainly、um, made me think of Suspiria 2018, which、uh-huh. takes place a few years Our before. Our German expressionism、mm-hmm. episode—we talked about it a lot. But just tell me that next episode we're dealing with something a little lighter. Well, Andrea, I mean, what we're going to talk about next episode is like—is it faith or is it chance? It's kind of both. Ooh, it's kind of both. It's something you just gotta believe in and hope for. Uh huh. We're gonna take our cameras into the woods. <laughs> we're gonna go look at some cryptids. I'm into it. I'm super into it. We are leaving this fucking love boat behind,、uh-huh. and we're gonna go look at some monsters of the wild. <laughs> Ooh! So for next episode, we're gonna be talking about two found footage horror films.、Um, so we're gonna be talking about Troll Hunter, and we're gonna be talking about Willow Creek and Bigfoot. Yeah, I'm excited. That's your big old Sam Squanch. 
homework for next episode uh, before we kick off into summer fun times. Yeah. I have never been super interested in cryptozoology until recently. That book by Max Brooks, Devolution, mm. really kind of turned me around on it by offering some perspective. So I, I'm ready to uh, to look at these films with, with some fresh eyes. And um, I just want to say, like, you know, I know Andrea, we had some fun during this episode and I was all like, oh, we're over. I'm taking so the listeners. But I just want to say I went to the bathroom and I've come back a better person. Oh, wow. I'm more a more realized, caring, giving person, and I'm I'm ready to raise our listeners with you. Yeah, I'm definitely a better version of myself through having done this episode. <laughs> Andrea, your eyes are super green right now. Yikes. You look great. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you love children now. It's... I really do. I, I just, <laughs> it's something I need to do. It's uh, part of my DNA. Well, until the next time you are a primary caregiver... Office hours are closed.